Okay, we're going to get started. Um, I wanted just to introduce really quick, my name is Katrina. I kind of facilitate our finance team, but we've got some finance team members here. I just want them to stand up really quick. I'll be introducing some of them, but just so you guys can put faces to um, our team. If you're on the finance team, would you mind just standing really quick so people kind of know? That's all I see. Steve is already standing. Doug is already standing. Mike's on the team for today. <laughs> He's an honorary guest. Exactly. So uh, today what we want to do is um, give you guys a little bit of an idea. The finance team, our entire goal is really just to provide practical tools. There's a lot of things we could do and a lot of things we could discuss, but we just like to get down to the practicals of what could really help people in this moment. And in light of, we had a lot of ideas of what we could do for a guild breakout that we were like ready to do until our economics kind of status changed, and so we decided that we would kind of scrap everything we, we were going to discuss and just give you guys a little bit of the nitty-gritty on what's going on right now, what you can be doing. We've got some people on our team that have been in the finance world for many of years and have um, a lot of insight into what's going on, so we thought that would be the best thing our finance team could bring right now. A lot of the housing stuff we're going to bring up because that's obviously a big portion of this uh, mess that we're kind of in. So that's our goal today. That's all we're you know, really hoping is just to give you guys a few little tools, hopefully some practical stuff. Um, we're going to start with Mike. I asked Mike to come and talk because in light of everything uh, going on, we can give you the practicals, but obviously you know, just to find out what the word says first and foremost is kind of what we wanted to do. And Mike has taught residency. I was in residency a couple years ago, and he would bring a few scriptures. Um, we did a little bit on this topic, and so I just thought he would be the best person to come in and kind of cover a little bit before we get into it. And then Steve Lop is going to do the majority of the talking. Uh, he's been in the finance world for... How long? A little longer than me. About how long I've been alive. So, so he's going to... I'm a little older. Not much. So he's going to do... Um, He's going to do a lot more of the detail stuff. And then Doug Hefner has been in the reality side and the uh, financing side of finances for a long time. And he's going to come up at the end and just touch on, we've got some documents. We'll hand out some of this right now. Some of it we'll give to you guys later if you want it. A couple of resources, a couple of at least tools to you know, get you help if you need it. So I'm going to open up in prayer. And then, Mike, you can get us started. All right. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just thank you for this day, and I just thank you already for um, Larry and what he has brought to us today, Lord, and I just thank you for speaking through him, and now for this opportunity, Lord, to speak through these gentlemen, Lord, and I just pray for uh, wisdom, Lord, for them, and just for the opportunity that we have, Lord, to open up your word and really find out what you have to say in light of everything that's going on, Lord, in our world. And so I just thank you for that, and thank you for this time. And in your name we pray, amen. We record a lot of these and put them online later, so folks that are doing other breakouts can make these, so later can listen to them. Uh, Katrina had asked me to speak, and she was talking to Cam, who's my assistant yesterday, and Cam was asking what I was going to do with the Guild, and Katrina says, yeah, he's going to speak in the finance deal. And Cam said, Mike Slayton? He's <laughs> like, yeah, Mike Slayton. Cam said, he doesn't even do the finances in his house. Why are you bringing him to speak on any of this? So uh, my wife thought that was pretty humorous as well. Uh, so uh, here's what I would love to do. I, I want to give just a biblical framework. I, I think I can at least speak to that. And then I want to get out of the way and let these two guys, Doug and Steve both, speak to a lot of the practical. Katrina, when we started doing these guild breakouts, she'd request a room for five. Um, and I kept realizing it's like this every time. It's always packed. They're incredibly practical, very, very helpful, uh, and that's really our heart today. So obviously, as a biblically measured church, I'd love to just kind of give an overview of how we view finances at the well, maybe uh, how God views finances, and then step in and let these guys hammer it. So if you've got your Bible, open up with me real quick. Uh, someone... Someone grabs Psalm 24. Who can grab that one for me? Psalm 24, verse 1. Dave, thank you. Someone else grabs Psalm 50, verse 10. Who's got that one? Just raise your hand if you got it. Thank you, Kelly. First uh, Chronicles 29. If you can find it, that'll be a challenge <laughs> for most of you. Uh, for me as well, I was like, where is Chronicles? Um, Old Testament, right? Okay, thank you. Uh, Holly, do you mind getting Luke 16? No Bible? I thought you were raising your hand. No? Nothing? You're... Hmm. 
finance person on staff. I caught you. Luke 16. Who, who can grab Luke 16 for me? Thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, here's my heart. I, I love just to give a couple maybe nuggets of, um, of truth is kind of how we see things in Scripture. I think a lot of us, I mean, as we talk about this issue, especially in, in premarital counseling, it's a hot button. It is the number one cause of divorce. Uh, you take all the other causes of divorce, uh, money beats all of them combined. So you talk about an issue that will bring some heat in a marriage and a lot of misunderstanding. This is a significant one. So I'd love to maybe shift our attention to how does Scripture look at this issue of money, our stewardship, and those type of things. Okay, uh, so Psalm 24.1, uh, who's got that one? Read that for me, Dave, please. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell there. Uh, interesting deal how God views the world and the earth. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. So everything on earth is God's, right? All of it. That's what God says. 100% of the stuff is mine. Not just uh, the stuff, but all that dwell in it are mine. Okay? That changes the way we view money, doesn't it? It changes the way we view our stuff. It changes the way we view our, our house, our car. Okay? So principle number one, God owns everything. Right? Are we safe there according to Scripture? Psalm 50, verse 10, it says what? Who's got that one? God, just again repeating, the, the, the world is mine. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. You know, a thousand is often a number used in Scripture to say everything, okay? He owns all. So principle number one with money, with stuff, what have you, it's all God's, okay? Secondly, who's got First uh, Chronicles 29? Read verses 11 and 12 for me. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power, and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. That's good. You guys hearing a theme in that? Everything's yours. Uh, pick up there in verse 14 and then read 16 as well. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give generously as this? Everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from our hands. Please. O Lord our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hands and all it belongs to you. This is King David speaking about the temple that they're going to build for God that his son Solomon will ultimately build. And he just clearly communicates it's all God's, right? So firstly, it's all God's. Secondly, we own nothing. Okay? If everything is God's, if the whole earth is God's, then obviously from that we can deduce that secondly, all of this is uh, his, and we own nothing, okay? Uh, Luke 16, somebody go there for me, 10 through 13, read that for me. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous in all things. If therefore you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that, which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Yeah, so the idea that we are thirdly stewards. God owns everything. We own nothing. Thirdly, we are stewards. God will entrust to us those that use his wealth and his things properly more. Just like Larry said, you get more light when you obey the light. You get less light when you disobey. So thirdly, we are stewards. Okay. If that's the case, and here's the fourth thing I'd say about this. If everything is God's and none of it is ours and we are simply stewards, then every financial decision that we make is spiritual, right? Nothing is unspiritual about money. All of it's spiritual. My wife and I were having a conversation about surround sound the other day. I was like, oh, I really like, you know, I'm like, oh, it's just drooling over this stuff in Best Buy. And I was like, oh, I'd really like it. And she just said, babe, is that the best stewardship of our money right now? I was like, dang it, you had to do that, woman. You know, why did you, why did you have to bring that up? But she was right. And it was very convicting for me to think, you know what? It could be, and it may be, but I need to think through, is that the best way that I can steward not my money, but God's money? And I really think he wants me to have surround sound. So, <laughs> But it determines a lot, does it not? Are we stewarding our money best in other places that these guys will talk about later? Okay, So I think that's a shift that we all need to see. It's all God's. We own nothing. We're simply stewards, and as a result, everything that we do is spiritual in this realm, okay? Let me give you three quick applications, and I want to hand it over to these guys, okay? If that's the case, here are, I think, some very general overviews that I stole fair and square uh, from a guy that I think were brilliant, so I'll just pass them along to you. Uh, number one, he said this, to live simply, okay? If we're stewards and we're just, 
We're, we're managing God's money and God's stuff for him. That I think for us to live simply is a high call. To live within your means, in fact, to live far below your means is wise. Okay, That's convicting in our day and age as we look around, and it's a lot about keeping up with the Joneses. And man, I'm going to buy a house to invest so I can sell my house and make more and get a bigger house and the cars and, and all that that we compare ourselves to. Okay, And for newlyweds, the two biggest struggles for them are the desire for the new car in the house. That's what gets most people upside down pretty quick, are wanting the things that they're not quite ready to have. So live simply, and that just, it takes the monkey of money off your back. Secondly, I encourage you to work diligently. If we're stewards, then we need to work hard for God, right? We need to do whatever we do is unto the Lord, as Colossians says. So we need to work hard, work diligently uh, in the way that we live. And thirdly, I'd say we need to give generously. We need to give in a way that honors God with our stuff, with our money, with our Whatever it may be, our time, we need to give things away, okay? Live simply, work diligently, and give generously. And I think if those three things mark us, uh, we will do well and then kind of living this out, all right? So at the end of the day, I hope you guys hear that all the stuff that we're going to talk about today is God's. As we deal with the nitty-gritties of finance, as we talk about these things uh, with houses and the economy, God's in control, okay? He's not freaking out right now that the economy is where it's at. Uh, he knows what's going on. Uh, ultimately, he is still in charge of everything, and we are stewards of his creation, okay, and the things that he's given us. So, Steve, let me bring you up. I'd love for you to speak to now a lot more of the details and uh, have fun dealing with the, uh, the very practical stuff. Thanks, Mike. I'm going to add uh, where Mike has left off and, and, and try to uh, pick up on, on something here. Uh, also, biblically, you know, speaking in terms of of maybe contentment. Um, the, a verse, if you have your Bible and you want to look at this with me, is, is in uh, Hebrews 13.5. And uh, in the New American Standard, it says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. Uh, it, it goes back to what Mike said. It, God's not surprised by what's going on here. Um, he is sovereign. And, um, you know, the, the, uh, I looked up the Greek word uh, that's used in the text. It's archaeo. It means to be content, to have enough, to, to recognize the sufficiency of what we have. Now, I, I contrast that with um, greed, which is de- defined as excessive desire. And from that, uh, I, I, I referenced Proverbs eleven four through 6, which read, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless will smooth his way, but the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. And finally, in verse 6, The righteousness of the upright will deliver them, but the treacherous will be caught by their own greed. Caught, uh, meaning there is in a snare, as if an animal trapped in a snare. So you get that contrast of, of, of the peace of contentment and the stress of, of greed. Um, I work in the financial fields. I've, I've been involved with money for a long, long time. Um, and professionally, I've been doing this for, like I said, about 19 years. So I want to talk about some practical things that, that you can get um, to know. Uh, if you're if you're overly confident in CNBC, I'm going to tell you right now, you're, you're going to get you know pretty dismayed by what's going on now because there's there, you know there's all this speculation about you know this is like the Great Depression and it's not. This is like this and this is like that. Um, I didn't live through the Great Depression. I'm not that old, uh, but <laughs> but but a, a big a big difference that I will tell you in the Great Depression there was a run on banks. That's what what caused the Great Depression. Uh, there used to be, when you wrote a check, there was a tax to write that check. So people said, we're not going to write checks, we're going to we just take cash. So when the run of banks happened, 40% of all the banks in 1929 closed. 40%. 4-0. So far, 14, I've got to take off my shoes to count the high. 14 banks have closed so far out of 8,400. That's less than four-tenths of 1%. So when you make rash statements like that that exacerbate an already bad situation that tends to, you know, try to throw more emotion, throw more gas on a fire. Um, 
you know, it, it, it's, it's not, you know, I'm not here to tell you it's all good. Uh, there, are, there is some good that's happened in this. And what I wanted to track, I, 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 you know, through my profession, I subscribe to, to some different things that are a little bit more objective. But I wanted to track something interesting for you. Um, on January 7th of this year, oil broke $100 per barrel. Okay? Um, and, you know, we saw some other things happen. The Fed cut interest rates. Citigroup posted a almost $10 billion loss, writes down $18 billion in, in subprime debt, and I'll get into that. Fed cuts interest rates in March, again in, in April. Uh, oil, in, on April, I'm sorry, May 19th, hits $125 a barrel. Um, and, and this chart references, this is the S&P 500 from January of this year to, 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 to um, sorry, uh, September of this year. So you can see a, a trend here, right? Okay. Um, oil hits $140 a barrel on uh, June 23rd and peaks at 147.28 a barrel over fears of concerning Iranian missile crisis. That was on July 14th. Does anybody know where the price of oil is right now? It's a little, little under that. Yeah, it's about, about $56 a barrel right now. And what have we seen as a result of that at the pump? We've seen a decline in, in gasoline prices of nearly $2. Now, let me reference something for you. I'm going to tell you about a $200 billion economic package that we have as Americans. For every one penny increase in the, in the price of gasoline at the pump, it puts $1 billion of additional discretionary income annually into the American economy. So if it dropped by two bucks, that's $200 billion. We have more as a people to spend. Now, you know, the, the retailers are hoping that's going to result in a little bit better Christmas shopping at Macy's and Target. Hopefully we'll, we'll address some of our credit concerns with that as well. But, you know, um, just, just to give you an oversight, it's not all bad news. Uh, newspapers, the media, our uh, print, I mean, they don't, they don't get paid for telling you about the firefighter who, kitten, who rescues the kitten or the, or the, or the Boy Scout who, who helps the, the grandmother across the street. They're, they're paid for selling bad news. We've become uh, a nation of yellow journalism where the, you know, the Fresno Bee has become more like the National Enquirer. Um, I want to read something to you from um, something I subscribe to from our, 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 our basic, uh, our, our main company, Nylum. Uh, after years of relative tranquility, the financial markets have not been for the faint of heart during this past year. Market gyrations can unnerve even the most seasoned investor. Fortunately, there are a number of time-tested investment strategies that can help you remain focused on your long-term financial goals. Um, it's not so much coming up with an answer sometimes as asking the right questions. So when we look at our 401k statements and see that the value is maybe 20 or 30 percent less than what it was in January at the peak of the market on October 8th of 2007 when the Dow was at a little over 14,000. We have to reference in that is, well, for most of the people in this room looking around, we should be buyers, not sellers. Now, it would be a critical situation, it would be kind of a uh, you know, critical moment if we had to be sellers at this point. But, but really, the only people who are losing right now are those who are selling. And if they're selling when they don't need to be, they're not only losers, they're stupid. And, and I've, I'm sorry if I offend you. I'm, I'm, from, I'm from New York, and I offend a lot of people. Um, <laughs> but, but the truth the reality is, if, if, you're, if you've got more than seven years till you need to spend this money, then, you know, you should be thinking about this as a white flower day sale. I mean, you know, th this stuff's on sale. And, and if you believed in it, I mean, if you were buying it up here and feeling good about it on October of 2007, why not feel better about buying it down here in November of 2008? Because stuff's on sale. And, and if your objective is not to sell it for 20 more years or 10 more years or 30 more years, it's like I say to people in my business, my job isn't to get you to retirement. It's to get you through retirement to help you get all the way so that you don't run out of breath before you run out of money. 
I don't subscribe to too much in the Fresno Bee. I refer to it as my favorite birdcage liner. Uh, but, there is, but there is somebody who writes for the Bee who I, who I often subscribe to. His name is Victor Davis Hansen. Uh, he is a, uh, works out of the uh, Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He's a local. I think he's from Selma. Uh, brilliant man. Uh, and um, on October 19th, in, in, the, in the vision section of our Fresno Bee, the Sunday paper, um, he wrote some interesting things about uh, this, this article, and I have copies of it. It's, it's debt that's killing our economy. And I, I wrote some highlights here. So far, no one seems willing to tell the American people the truth. It is not just they, but we the people who have recklessly borrowed to spend what we haven't yet earned. In recent years, we've borrowed trillions of dollars overseas to buy oil from foreign producers when our energy challenges did not just concern independence, national security, and, and global warming. They involve basic financial solvency as well. As a nation of debtors, we are renting money from Asia to buy its exports with our credit cards. This was before the election. I think this was beautiful. Will some candidate please explain to the wheeler-dealer public that most real estate is not going to double or triple in value every few years. Instead, houses should once again be seen as homes to live in, places to raise your children, have Thanksgiving dinner, an Easter egg hunt for the kids in the neighborhood, rather than investments to get rich from. The problems on Wall Street, our energy woes, the election year fight over taxes versus more programs in the housing crash, have a common denominator, massive debt. They are the collective reflections of our own spendthrift habits of buying things with borrowed money that we either can't or don't want to pay back. You know what? It's hard. It's hard when we hear that. Um, on, on November 2nd, just before the election, I, I thought he had some interesting other things to compare to because a lot of people are saying, well, well, gosh, uh, you know, this is really bad, and, and America's, you know, just falling apart. Well, is it? Compared to the rest of the world, which has undergone incredible recession, um, we're not quite there. I mean, this, you know, the interesting thing about a recession is uh, you don't know it until it's already happened. Um, uh, so uh, we, uh, he writes, and I'm, I've just got excerpts of his article. The whole article is good. We got into this mess not because the American political system was flawed or because its free market system was stagnant. The problem was that after some six years of uninterrupted growth, human greed drove us to demand even more. We the people ran up credit cards, borrowed for overpriced houses, and drove gas-guzzling cards fueled by high-priced imported fuel. The result was a national debt flu, not a depression cancer that sickened an otherwise healthy host. I found this, I'm a statistics kind of guy, I love numbers. Um, I was the kid who alphabetized his albums in, you know, in the 60s. Um, the, the war in Iraq is no longer even a war in traditional sense. This is staggering. Four times as many Americans were murdered just in the city of Chicago at peace in July than all those Americans who were killed in Iraq at war during the same period. The cost of deploying American troops in Iraq is near the same expense to station them elsewhere abroad. Now, I don't know how you feel about the war in Iraq. Uh, personally, I feel we should support the troops, the men and women who are defending our country. Uh, you know, I think we're, we're, we're probably overextended there, but the reality is this is not the problem. The cost of the war in Iraq is not the problem. Has it helped out a lot of W's cronies in Texas? Yeah, probably, but... You know, one, one thing we knew on, on, on November 4th, and, and all we really needed to know about this election was a politician was going to be elected president, and that's trouble enough. <laughs> the current financial crisis has startled America from a hypnotic trance of self-indulgence and irresponsibility. But as we turn to American fundamentals, we may discover that our political, social, and economic system, despite all the current election-style cycle hysteria, is still by far the most resilient in the world. How odd it is. It took a financial catastrophe to remind us of that. So have faith in our system, a country that was, was founded on Christian principles, a country whose, whose greatest colleges all started out as theological seminaries, Harvard, Yale, Brown, all of them, seminaries. Now try to walk on those campuses with a Bible and see what happens. You better hold it up over your heart because you might get a bullet. Okay. Um, 
Let's see here. Oh, good. We're doing good on time, Katrina. Where's Katrina? Okay, she hasn't yanked the, hasn't yanked the, the switch yet. Um, she wanted me to talk about um, kind of the difference between saving um, and investing as opposed to borrowing. And the first question that I, that I really need, think we all need to ask, and, and maybe something that, that Mike went over with his trip to, to Best Buy with, uh, with Michelle, is that the first question you need to ask yourself is, do I really need that fill-in-the-blank? Whether it's a surround sound system or a, a bigger plasma TV or a, a bigger SUV or whatever it is that's a fill-in-the-blank for you. Do you really need that? Is that really going to improve your life? Maybe, you know, if you want to get spiritual about it, glorify God. You know, and I don't believe that, that owning stuff is, is wrong. I, you know, I drive a nice car. I worked for car companies for 21 years before I got into the business that, that I'm in now. Um, does that make me, does that make it an idol for me? I don't think so. I mean, Brad doesn't complain when we go out to lunch. Um, but, but just kind of frame that. Just say, well, you know, wh where am I standing? I mean, am, is, my, is my house payment more than a third of my, dis my, my income? If it is, then you're probably, you're probably upside down a little bit. I, get, I counsel people all the time. They come in and they're making $60,000 a year and they're spending eighty. How long are you going to do that for? You know, it's just it's crazy. Uh, I, I use a, a concept of buckets of money. And, I, and I, my, I'm, I'm a better speaker than I am an artist, and I'm not that good a speaker, so I won't draw for you. But, but if you think about buckets of money, if you think of the first bucket as being kind of your short-term bucket, and that should be for things like emergency funds, things that you know you're going to need, like your, uh, your property taxes if you own a home or or the insurance, if, if you don't impound your, your, uh, your homeowner's insurance, you know, you can pay for those things out of that short-term bucket. And, and that can be held in a, you know, in a money market account or, or even a six-month CD or something like that. That's a practical means because it's liquid. You can get to the money pretty easily. You have to go tap it in a bar in your 401k. Um, and, and typically, you know, what, what I say is about three to six months of expenses. Some people say income. But again, if you're, if you're living reasonably, I think expenses will probably cover that. Uh, then when that bucket's filled up with whatever you determine should be in that bucket, then you can have another bucket. So that when that bucket overflows, when you get to, when you say that that first bucket should have 10,000 in it, and you've got 15. Rah! Start running over into that midterm bucket. And that midterm bucket could be things like vacations. It's nice to take vacations. It's nice to take your family on vacations with you. Um, Saving for a car or a home, if you haven't already bought a home but you're thinking about it, this would be the, the midterm bucket. And, and typically you can invest in things like, you know, safer types of investments. Uh, yield on treasuries isn't that good right now, but, you know, maybe you can get into, into you know, some kind of bond fund or something that'll, uh, maybe a C-share bond fund that you can get to the money pretty easily within three years or so and you can use that money. The, the last thing is long-term. Long-term, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to... Dis distinguish, you know, short term is probably less than three years, midterm is three to five years. And I would say long term would be anything seven to ten years or further. Retirement would fit in there. If you have young children, you might want to start saving for college education in there. And the other thing I think that goes in there is insurance. Uh, I, love it when, I love it when people come to me and say, well, if I die, if? Really? It's not an if, it's a when, and, and you don't know when. So, so make your insurance thinking a little bit longer, at least long enough that, you know, that you're going to get to close to life expectancy. So, so when you think of, of, of the long-term bucket, things like the stock market, even though it's jacked up right now, you know, I, I did a seminar um, Thursday night um, for a group of, 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 our, of our folks investing. And we looked at an interesting slide. In, in 1987, many of you maybe weren't even... Katrina, were you born yet? No? 84. Okay. Um, you, couldn't, you couldn't read yet, but you were born. Okay. Um, in 1987, the stock market took a dump. It went from 2,500 to 2,100 in one day, which is a drop of about 20%. Okay? And, and we, look at the, we looked at the slide, and the slide was really cool, because the slide was like from 1980 to 1990. And you saw this, this 
terrible looking thing on the radar. It looked awful. Okay. Then we looked at a slide from 1977 to 2007. You know what? That, that 1987 looked like a speed bump, not a mountain. Because when you look at it in perspective, the market went from 2,500 to 2,100, and then it peaked to 14.1 on October 7. And yeah, it's down around 8,200, 8,300. It closed on, on, on Friday. So look at it in perspective. Um, when you think about investing in the market, it's not something that's always going to be up. The problem with, with your alternatives, if you invest in something that's always going to be worth more the next day than it was yesterday, you're not going to keep up with inflation. So if you're saving for retirement and you put it in something that's earning 3%, 4% if you can get it now, and inflation is 4%, uh, and that retirement money most likely is taxable, I, I get news. You ain't treading water in the pool, you're drowning. And it's just a matter of time they pronounce you. So, so don't think short-term for long-term goals. A lot of the things that I'm hearing from my clients, and I'll share a, a specific story. We get a lot of people, I manage, I manage about $33 million of wealth for my clients. So I get people who say, okay, Steve, I got my statement, and I'm like freaking out. And, you know, and so I, I take out their application. I say, now, you know, um, you were born in, you were born in 83. That hasn't changed. No. Okay. And uh, it says here you're saving for retirement. Yup. And your timeline is like 30 years, right? I said, okay. So what do you want to do now? Well, I was thinking, you know, I heard someone on CNBC or someone on Lou Dobbs or someone somewhere say, I should move my money into something safe right now. Okay. And, uh, and then, and I said, well, so, so you want to, you want to move that money from where it's at now into something safe and we'll pack it there for a little while until this rides out, right? You're not going to leave it there forever. No, 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 I'm going to leave it there forever. When are you going to move back in? Well, when the market goes back up, of course, because that's driving by emotion. So, so, okay, we, we, that's in slow motion. Let me play that back for you in regular speed. You bought high, you want to sell low, and then buy back in when it's high. Really? Is that what you paid me for? No, it's not. So, so although emotion has to play part of this, God created us as, as emotional people and built that into us. But we need to make decisions with a, a small measure of emotion and a larger m measure of, of good sense. So listen to the voice of reason a little bit more. Okay, case for optimism. I've got this handout. Katrina and I spent some time. I had about six of them, but, but this is the one that I thought was most valuable. So we made some copies of this. You, you've got some in your hands. This slide number two, why patience is a virtue. I think this is beautiful. 1977 to 2007, the percent of times that the stocks, as measured by the Standard & Poor's 500 index, had positive returns. If you look at a one-year period of time, which... If you're saving for retirement, I don't know why you'd want to look at that, but 83% of the time, you made money. Over a three-year period of time, 90% of the time. Over a five-year period of time, 96% of the time. And if you have over a 10-year period of time, what are your chances of losing money? Zero. And that's from, if actually, if the, the information we have going back to 1926 to 2007, there has never once been a rolling 10-year period that the stock market has lost more than 0.49%. Never. So, so we've got the chicken littles out there. Says, There's always a first time. Okay. Um, you know, it, it's not like, look, there's a risk in the market. You know, but you take the risk. Why? Because you feel like you're going to get a benefit from it. Risks and rewards. Um, if I if I told you, I've got a, an airline ticket to go to Hawaii here. It's going to be 800 bucks. But you got about like a 99.8 chance percent of getting there. Or I've got this other one that's only 400 bucks, but it's only an 80 percent chance. Which one are you going to buy? You're going to spend the money and get this one. It's not the same. It's not the, the same exact risk and reward profile. There's a, there's a lot more 
possibility of, of a downturn with the plane crashing than there is of your, of your investments not being able to recover in time for your retirement if you're only 30 or 40 years old. So ask the right question. Um, do they have slide number four to Katrina, the one that says the emotional roller coaster? Okay, I knew you were going to throw that one in because I guess you know you maybe like Magic Mountain or stuff. I always like the tilt or whirl better at the at the fair because you get to sit next to girls and stuff is fun. Um, headline buzzwords, you know, and, and there was an interesting thing. That, that we showed on, on Thursday night that was kind of similar to this. So, so we go from March 12th to 1997, anxiety, fear, and panic roll in until April 11th of, of, of 97, and, and emotion tells investors to sell here. The market starts to come back. We start feeling better about it. Excitement leads to euphoria, euphoria and then the optimistic emotion says to buy here. Uh, there's a fellow by the name of uh, Nick Murray. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Nick Murray. Nick, Nick is somebody who speaks to people in, in, in my field. and um, he, he did a very interesting study. He's another numbers guy. He's a you know, numbers cruncher like me. Um, in the, from 1990 to 2000, uh, it was an incredible bull run on the market. It was just a, I mean, you could be stupid and make money, and a lot of people were. Um, but the, he did an interesting survey. He said the Average investment return, and there's a slight play on words here, the average investment return for a large cap growth fund during that period of time was about 12.2%. Okay, so we took an average of all the large cap growth funds, like uh, Growth Fund of America, uh, you know, think of a large cap growth fund. The average investment return on the large cap growth fund for that period was 12.2%. The average investor return, so I'm making it personal now, the average investor return for, for those types of funds in that same period of time was almost half that, 6.2%. Why? Because people didn't trust the investors that they hired to leave the money the heck alone and do what it was supposed to do. So they went in and took it out, sold it low, bought it back high, and their actual investment return was only about a little over 6%. In the same exact investment, they didn't change the investment, they just tried to time it, which is foolish, really foolish. Um, I have one more slide. You don't have a copy of it, but if you want to come look at it later, you know, quarter a peak, maybe we'll give you a group discount. Um, interesting thing, portfolio begins, I'm getting tangled up in wires. Um, if you took a portfolio, again, we're, we're going to use the, um, the Standard & Poor's 500 index. If you took a portfolio and, and, and bought it at the worst possible time, and I'm going to pick some times that are before your time, some of them. If you took $100,000, invested it in March of 2000, when the tech bubble burst, everybody thought, it's going to go on forever. Um, March 2000, you invested $100,000. On September 2002, that portfolio would have been worth $56,426. And if you sold it, you lost. But if you held it, it would be worth $111,533 on June 30, 2008. You didn't make a lot of money, but you didn't lose any money because what? You let the investment do what it was supposed to do. I'm going to go back a little further. February 1990, you bought in $100,000. On October of 1990, it got down to 85,311. Anybody want to guess what it's worth now for June 30th? Try $585,643. September 87, just before Black Friday, October of 87, you put $100,000 in. By November of 87, two months later, it's only worth $70,000. So you had a 30% loss short term in your investment if you sold it, but if you held on to it, on June 30th, 707,000. Now these numbers are really going to get jacked up. November of 80, put 100,000 in. July of 82, you know, 20 months later, is worth $83,442. Portfolio value as of 6-30-2008, million. Now, I, I use that because that's a 28-year period of time. 
So for most of you in here, you don't have 100,000. That's the bad news. But the good news is you do have 28 years until you need to, to use that money. The, the, the exceptional thing is amazing here is on December of 72, if you put 100,000 in by September of 74, it was only worth $57,000. But if you left it the heck alone and did what Mick Murray recommended is to let your hired people be your hired guns, it was worth, um, what was it, three point. $3,885,000, it seems ridiculous, but I'm not going to argue with the figures. I want to close, because I have like a minute left. I want to close with something, um, because really God gives us kind of a nice template to use when we're thinking about, we're thinking about what to do with our money. In, in Ecclesiastes 11, um, a pretty bright guy by the name of Solomon uh, writes the inspired word of God, and he says, Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Um, divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur in the earth. So we're talking about, you can't just process this stuff intellectually. You actually have to do something about it. And when you do something about it, verse 2 talks about diversifying. Diversify. Don't just put all your eggs in one basket, because Godzilla will come along and step on that basket. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. I'm going to skip forward um, to verse 6. It says, Sow your seed in the morning, and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will be successful, or whether both of them alike will, will uh, be good. Um, you know, uh, I, I don't have, uh, I don't know when the market's going to turn around, if I did, I'd hire a private jet. We'd all go to Paris and have dinner tonight. You know, I mean, I could afford to do that. Um, but, but what I do know is I've been in, through enough of these cycles as a consumer and as an advisor to tell you that um, although there is cause for concern right now, I think when you carefully consider what you should do, it should be to diversify, uh, kind of frame what your objectives are, um, and, um, and, you know, work with somebody. Uh, for, for most of my clients, although I do have the ability to charge a fee for service, most, most advisors don't charge you a fee for service. And, uh, you know, you don't have to pay for somebody to help you with this. So reevaluate re your risk tolerance. Refine investment objective to align with risk. Stay focused on the long term if that's a big bucket, you know, the last bucket of money approach. Use times of market fear to position for future returns and stay broadly diversified. Um, I want to bring Doug. Uh, Doug Hefner is um, one of our uh, other folks in the finance team and, and talk about a little bit of um, motivation for purchasing power. But I want to go back to something I said earlier. Will someone please explain to the wheeler dealer public that most real estate is not going to double or triple in value every few years? Instead, homes should once again be seen as homes to live in rather than investments. My name is Doug Hefner. I'm a real estate mortgage broker. I'm that guy. <laughs> okay? Just so you got a face to go with the headlines, okay? So don't believe everything you read. I, that sounds pretty profound, doesn't it? But uh, it isn't my fault. It isn't your fault. It's all of our faults, unfortunately. I wanted to touch a couple, uh, in a couple areas um, because we could talk for another six hours if we wanted. I wanted to talk about people that are actually looking to buy a home now. Great time to buy a home. Affordable time to buy a home. When's the best time to buy a home? Right now. Right now. When's the best time to buy a home in the future? Whenever it's your time to buy a home. It's always a good time. Don't wait for the market to go lower, as we all think. Hey, I'm just waiting for the market to drop even far farther. There are too many variables that go into a real estate transaction or a mortgage loan, and that is interest rates. If the interest rate goes up by a half a percent, you need to drop that price by about $50,000. So as rates go up and down, it increases value, okay, up or down. So if I'm waiting for the real estate to go down, Another 50, oops, excuse me, another $50,000, you know what, by a year from now when that may happen, if it does happen, 
interest rates could be up a full percent and you've actually lost money by doing it in the long run. So keep that in mind. A couple of things um, that if you're looking to buy a home today, get pre-qualified first. First of all, get a budget. Know what your budget is. Know what your income is. Know what your expenses are. Sit down, talk to your wife, uh, talk to yourself, talk to whoever, and figure out what is the budget you want to work with. Because normally, mortgage guys, we can get you to afford something higher or than, than what you want. Your budget may be $1,500, but you qualify for a $3,000 payment. That may not be best for you. So go and get pre-qualified. Do that before you start looking at the houses. Because why? We're Americans. I see, I want, I must have. Okay? But I don't know what it costs. Okay? So go and find out what you qualify for, what your budget is, and then back into it and say, that is a $200,000 house. Go look at $200,000 houses. Go look at $210,000 because you can probably get it for a little bit less. Okay? Those are a few, few tricks. Go to someone that is licensed or works for a bank, okay? Because they have to be regulated by federal auditors. With all the stuff that's going on right now, the market is contracted. There's less and less places to get mortgage, mortgage money. It's very hard to get mortgage money right now. We were giving it away two years ago, okay? Mir, fogged up. Hey, you got a loan, okay? Yes, no, no nothing. So, so it's a lot harder today which means more documentation, more check, more everything. So more is more. They want your file this big. Um, I've got some brochures up here. When you're looking at buying a home, here's some quick, easy steps to go through. Grab those on the way out. I'm, I don't want to go through all of it with you. But those are just a couple of the highlights, okay, as far as what you need to look at and ask questions to yourself, to your spouse, to whatever. Um, uh, if you own a home and you are currently having problems, don't run and hide, okay? Everybody has, got, has had a financial problem one time or another in their life, okay? If you're having a hard time making your house payment, don't ignore it, okay? Don't ignore it. There's more help now than there ever has been. If you are in the middle of or your house is going to foreclosure, you're having problems making, making the payments, whatever. There are a lot of steps that you can do. Number one is make a call to your lender immediately and tell them you're having a problem and ask them what to do. There are agencies, uh, HUD, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. Uh, ha we have 800 numbers on this. These forms here, we've got some numbers and things. So if you are having some problems, um, grab some of these, hold on to it come up and see me or, or whatever, we will steer you in the right direction because it is a very scary time. But the number one thing is don't ignore it, okay? There is help out there for you. There is help coming. Uh, it, it's not a lot of help, but, but it, there is help. Now is a good, good time that if you are having problems that you can get the help that you need to stay in your home or whatever. And sometimes staying in your home might not be might not be the the choice that might not be the choice that it ends up you may end up losing your home but at least you can start your life over and, and start getting on down the road but there are a lot of things going on with the uh, overall banking industry and credit in industry um, this week uh, the treasury secretary polson basically we they don't know what's going on because the 700 billion dollar bailout was 350 of it was supposed to go to buy toxic mortgages. They threw that out this week. It's not going to work. They threw it out. So they don't know what's going to happen. All I, my, my only thing that I can tell you is if you have a reliable mortgage broker, banker, or whatever, whoever you, got your, whoever you had your mortgage through that you trust and did a good job the last time, go back to them, ask them for, for some advice, ask them for um, some phone numbers to get help. Okay. Again, do not ignore it. Answer the phones. Open the ma uh, answer your phone. Open your mail, because there are time sensitive, date sensitive things that can happen. And what happens a lot of times is we want to ignore it, ignore it, ignore it, push it off to where you get backed into a corner, and then there isn't as much help available for you to take care of the problem. So, 
address it, look at it early, ask for help, ask, come, come to the church, come to Katrina. She can put you in touch with people that aren't looking to sell anything to you, uh, ask you for money up front, all these um, scams that are going on right now. Um, we're going to get you the help that you need, and at least you'll get the honest and best approach to it and get you in touch with the people that you need to be in touch with so that you can make a wise decision based on biblical truths. Okay? So, um, did we have any questions? or? I just want to mention, um, like I said, we have those things for you guys to pick up. We also have, we did some brochures on a ton of different topics about a year or so ago, so if you haven't ever got this, feel free to grab there's plenty of them. So, and then the other thing, I'm just going to pass this out. Don't pick one if you don't need one, but what it is, um, if you want to fill it out and give it back to me today, or if you take um, any of these brochures on the back, they have how to contact us, so that would work as well. But on the actual card, um, it's just a little info card if you want someone to talk to you. This was a very small portion of what our finance team can cover. We kind of have what I call little experts on the team that all have different fields. So you can kind of see two fields that we deal with. We thought these were kind of the most uh, important topics for what's going on right now. But you may be dealing with just trying to get a budget under control or um, you know, looking at estate planning or debt management. There's a ton of area, other areas that our finance team is willing to chat with you about. And so if you mark which area you want some help on, then I can get you better directed with the right person on our team. And so I'd be happy to do that or talk to you. You can always email me or call me, and I can get you set up with the right person. So. As far as Q&A goes, you know, and I'm, I'm sure, hopefully, uh, not sure, but hopefully some of the information we've gone over today is stimulating some ideas or questions that you may have. Uh, I think I can speak for our team. If, if you're willing to buy us lunch over in the free uh, lunch section of ADOT, we'll sit with you and kind of unpack some of that stuff. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to eat. If you guys have any interest, too, in any other of the topics or all the topics, Write it down on our suggestion or drop it off in the office or whatever in the future um, because we would be willing to put on other seminars with more in-depth stuff with either in our each little expertise or even if you wanted us to come to your, if you're in a small group and you're all talking about certain, yeah, uh, life group or whatever, we would be willing to do that too. So we're here at your disposal. Um, we're here to help you. We're here to answer any questions that you would have. And uh, we want you to utilize that, uh, to, to utilize us, because that's uh, part of our ministry. So, uh, so if you have anything else. Thanks for your attendance. Yeah, it was really nice.